Well, I am so thankful to see a lot of guests this morning. Uh, again, welcome. Uh, if you're new to our church, I want you to know that what we're about to do for the next few minutes is really nothing out of the ordinary, <laughs> and even though this is Easter Sunday. Uh, I'm going to open the Bible, I'm going to preach a particular passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to apply what it says as best as I can to our lives. Uh, at Redeeming Grace, we, we typically preach through books of the Bible, and for the last 10 weeks, we have been walking steadily through the book of Genesis, the story of humanity's beginning and the story of the beginning of God's plan of redemption, his plan to bring salvation to the world. You know, I'm always amazed by how God providentially oversees advanced sermon planning. I planned out the specific breakdown of this Genesis series back in August. And uh, honestly, I had no idea at that time that Genesis 22 would fall on Easter Sunday. But as it turned out, it did. And friends, Genesis 22 is one of the most obviously Christ-pointing texts in the entire Old Testament. As we're going to see this morning, it has themes and truths directly applicable to Good Friday and Easter. I'm looking forward to preaching this text this morning because it's clear to me that the Lord has orchestrated it for us on this day. So please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 22. It's on page 16 of the Bible underneath your seat. For the past several weeks... We have studied the life of Abraham. He feels like an old friend at this point, doesn't he? The once pagan man from Mesopotamia that God called out of his homeland in order to work his plan of redemption through Abraham and through his offspring. God undergirded his call of Abraham with spectacular, although seemingly impossible, promises. God promised Abraham that he, would, that he would make his offspring into a great nation, that they would be as, as numerous as the stars of the sky, that his offspring would possess the land of Canaan, that God would bless Abraham and through Abraham bless the nations of the world, that Abraham's name would be great like the kings of the earth. Well, all of that seemed really amazing except for one big problem. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren. She could not have children. And then Sarah's barrenness was, of course, compounded by her old age. And yet, as we've read and studied and seen, God did the miraculous. He kept his promise. He gave life to, to aged Sarah's dead womb, and Isaac, the son of laughter, was born. As we saw last week, God chose Isaac to carry on his promise. His line of descent, not Ishmael's, his other son of, of Hagar, was blessed by God. We saw last week, if you'll remember, that God's saving promises rest on His sovereign grace alone. He makes promises that only He can keep, and then He keeps them in ways that only He can do. Well, now we come to the last major event in Abraham's life. It kind of feels like we're saying goodbye today. Given the lead-up of 25 years of waiting for God to fulfill His promise of offspring to Abraham, what we're going to see, what God asked Abraham to do in chapter 22 is utterly shocking. It's jaw-dropping. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son, the son of promise, as a burnt offering on the altar. Let's read together verses 1 to 19 of Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. After these things, being after he had sent off Ishmael and Hagar, 
After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him. There is a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. This passage is just full of drama, isn't it? It seems that the higher in elevation that, that Abraham walks into Moriah, the higher the tension builds. And so at last, while on top of the mountain, the Lord intervenes and provides the substitute for Isaac. My outline today really mirrors what I think is the breakdown of the text. Number one, the test taken. Number one, the test taken, that's in verses one to eight. Number two, the sacrifice provided. The sacrifice provided, that's in verses nine to 14. And number three, the blessing confirmed. That's in verses 15 to 19. The test taken, the sacrifice provided, the blessing confirmed. Friends, I think all three of these sections of the story contribute to the main idea of the text, which is the main idea of this sermon, and that's this. God is trustworthy. No matter how impossible His call to obedience seems. God is trustworthy. 
no matter how impossible his call to obedience seems. Let's look at the first point together, the test taken. This week I was at a local coffee shop working when I received a call from my clearly distressed wife. She said, John, you've got to get back here right now. There's a snake in our pool. The kids and I are in the car. We're leaving. You need to come home now and get this thing out. Now, most of you know that uh, during the first month of living here in Arizona, Lindsay did walk up on a rattlesnake on the front porch. And so it, it traumatized her, I think, for life. Uh, we about had to leave town right then and go back to Kentucky. Um, and so as she's telling me this, I'm thinking two things. Number one, this cannot be happening again, please. Number two, how can I call Phil Hagel to come kill the snake while still preserving my manhood? And then just as I'm formulating my plan of attack while trying to calm my dear wife, she yells, April Fools. So messed up. Psychotic. If you are reading straight through Genesis for the first time, having never read this story before, and you had just read of the miraculous things that the Lord had done to, to Abraham to give him Isaac, I think you'd, you'd be thinking, you'd be waiting for the Lord's, oh, just kidding, right? JK, April Fool's, Abraham. From Abraham's perspective, there was no JK at the end of God's command. He was asking Abraham to do the unthinkable, to kill his one and only son and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Modern-day critics of Christianity have tried to use Genesis 22 to portray God as a moral monster. Prominent atheist Richard Dawkins wrote of Genesis 22, this disgraceful story is an, is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was simply obeying my orders. As much as we want to rush to the Lord's defense in an, an attack like this, does Dawkins have a point? Is God any better than the pagan gods like Molech, whose worship included child sacrifice? Even for Christians, this, this text can be like a pebble in our shoe. We want to trust in God's unadulterated righteousness and goodness, but what God asks here of Abraham nags at us as unreasonable and at worst unethical. At the risk of losing the drama and the tension in the story as it builds and builds until it's resolved in verse 11, I think the key to understanding what God is doing here is right there in verse 1. Right in the first verse. Moses, the narrator, clues us in from the beginning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. In other words, this whole account was set up by the Lord to test the veracity of Abraham's faith. If Abraham had disobeyed the Lord, there would have been no sacrifice. And of course, in Abraham's obedience, God provided a substitute sacrifice instead of Isaac. So, friends, God was not bloodthirsty. He's not a moral monster. In fact, what he is doing here is for Abraham's good. Several of you are teachers. When you give a test, is it for your own good? 
or the good of your students? Well, of course, it's for the good of your students. They might not think that it's for their good at that time, but the test is designed to uh, do several things, evaluate their development, prove that if they're learning, so it is with Abraham. And why is this type of test even necessary? Because several times thus far in the story, Abraham flunked the test of faith. We've seen that, that Abraham's faith in God's promises was, was interspersed with episodes of severe unbelief. Just remember, twice, twice he lied about the identity of his wife, putting her in harm's way and threatening the promise. In chapter 16, he slept with Hagar in an attempt to manipulate God's promise since his wife was barren. Abraham's faith has been like a roller coaster. And so now that God has fulfilled his promise for, of a son for Abraham, God is testing his allegiance his love, and his trust. Look at how the Lord's command underscores the heart-wrenching thing he's asking Abraham to do. Verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go. It's not just Abraham's son. Now that Ishmael is gone, it's his only son, his beloved son. In addition to tugging our heartstrings, I think Moses wrote the account in this way to order, in order to throw our minds back to the time when, when we first encountered Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Listen to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and, and see this kind of threefold order of the command. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. God had asked Abraham to leave all that he had ever known behind him, to trust in God as he walked away from his past. And now Genesis 22 is reminiscent of chapter 12. But now the call of the Lord isn't to go in relationship to his past, but in relationship to his future. Go, take your son, your only son, whom you love, to the land of Moriah and offer him there. The question is really, Will Abraham obey God now as he obeyed him then? I'm sure that it would have been really difficult, right, to pick up and leave your homeland and your friends and some of your family and, and walk into the unknown. It certainly required faith in the promise. But there's no doubt in my mind, and I'm sure there's no doubt in yours, that what God is doing here, He is up the ante. I don't think you could have conceived of a greater test of Abraham's faith his trust in God. Those of you who have children know this. This is, this is inconceivable to me as a father to do what God is asking Abraham to do. And our children aren't even the child of promise, even though we like to think that they are, that they're really special. But not only is Isaac the beloved son, Abraham's entire future rests in Isaac. It's in Isaac that Abraham's offspring shall be named. If Isaac is consumed by the fire of the burnt offering, Abraham's future goes up in smoke. And yet, Moses writes this account in a way to hide any internal struggle that Abraham might have had. Did you notice that? We don't see any agonized decision-making. We're not told that Abraham encountered the Lord with, hey, can I just have a night to pray about it, please? Can I, can I sleep on it and get back to you in the morning? No. Verse 3 says that Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two young men with him and his son Isaac. Just very matter of fact, boom, boom. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He went to the place that the Lord had told him. 
other than his, here I am at, in, in, in verse one, we're not told that Abraham said anything. He is marked by quiet and remarkable obedience. Friends, I wonder how you respond when God calls you to do what seems impossible or inconceivable. What's your reaction when the Lord stretches you beyond what you think is your breaking point? When He tests you beyond your finite understanding? When He leads you into waters that threaten to overwhelm you? Are you marked by quiet trust and obedience? Or are you marked by quiet accusing of God in His ways? When God takes or threatens what is dearest and closest to your heart, what's your response? Friend, if anyone had a right to prosecute the Lord, it's Abraham. If anyone in history had a right to implicate God and accuse Him of injustice, it's Abraham right here. And yet we're given no indication that he did anything other than trust God and obey. He was willing to put it all on the line in this moment. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. On the third day. Well, in one sense, this reference to the third day just highlights the length of time that Abraham had with Isaac and his two servants on the journey. Abraham's obedience apparently was not proved in a spur-of-the-moment decision. Right? It was proved over three days of resolution to obey God's will. No doubt, Abraham would have been tempted to turn back, but yet he walked on. However, I do think this third day language is significant. So since it's Easter, let me take a bit of a rabbit trail to explain why. Okay? After God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, they were told to meet the Lord at Sinai on the third day. I think it's very possible that Moses recognizes a significance to the third day, and he highlights it here in Genesis in the story of Abraham. And then as the story of Scripture begins to move on, in later Scripture, Joshua is told to be ready to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land on the third day. Later in Scripture, the Lord through the prophet Isaiah prophesies that King Hezekiah of Israel will be brought back from the brink of death to worship in the temple again on the third day. Later in the Bible, Jonah is three days and three nights in the belly of the whale or the fish. Key mistake there. Of the fish. We're told that that corresponds to the resurrection of Jesus. Later in the Bible, Hosea, the prophet Hosea prophesies that Israel's exile and then their return from exile will be like a death and a resurrection on the third day. Listen to Hosea 6.2. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. <laughs> what am I saying? I'm saying that there seems to be a pattern in the Bible of significance to the third day. The only and beloved Son was offered up on the third day. God forged a relationship through covenant with His people on the third day. They entered the promised land on the third day. The King of Israel was brought from death to life, as it were, on the third day. God's people will be raised from their exile on the third day. Friends, this is why I think the Apostle Paul could write in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, that not only did Jesus die for our sins and according to the Scriptures, but that He arose from the dead on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
Jesus' resurrection from the dead fits the mold of God's miraculous covenant-keeping power displayed on the third day. And by fulfilling these patterns, Jesus fulfilled God's word. We are raised from death to life with him, brought out of exile of our sin to walk in newness of life. It's amazing. Okay, rabbit trail over. Back to our story. I hope that was helpful. If it wasn't, don't worry about it. Then I think the question that we should be asking at this point in Genesis 22 is, how in the world can Abraham do this? How could he possibly obey God by killing his own son? What motivated him? Well, I think there's a massive clue given in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. It's not obvious in English, but all three of those verbs are plural in the Hebrew. Okay, So Abraham basically says, I and the boy, we will go over there. We will worship. We will come back again to you. What? Was Abraham just saying that with his fingers crossed behind his back? Kind of wink. Was he glossing over the hard realities not to freak out his servants and Isaac? Or maybe he really believed that not only would he go to Mount Moriah and worship and sacrifice Isaac, but they would both come back after Abraham had sacrificed him. This is a remarkable statement because clearly Abraham did intend to kill Isaac. He did intend to kill him. Look at verse 6. It's like Moses narrates this in slow motion so we can see every detail. Frame by frame, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. So likely Isaac is a teenager at this point. He's capable of shouldering the weight of the wood. Abraham carried the weapons. He had the knife and the fire to light the altar. Then Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father said, here I am, my son. Isaac said, I see the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Isaac asks a legitimate question, doesn't he? It's a logical question. Hey, dad, we've got the tools. We've got the wood. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's words, my son, are ambiguous in the text. In both Hebrews, Hebrew excuse me, and English, there's ambiguity there. He could be addressing Isaac as his son, or he could be saying that the burnt offering is indeed his son. God will provide the burnt offering, my son. What a beautiful and heart-wrenching answer. Abraham had every intention of killing Isaac and offering him on the altar, as the Lord said. And Abraham did this in full assurance that God would provide the sacrifice. Typically, <laughs> typically it's the one offering the sacrifice that provides it. But here, Abraham attributes the provision of the sacrifice to the Lord. He will provide. So what am I saying? Well, to reiterate, Abraham clearly intended to kill his son, to sacrifice him. And yet he told his servants that he and the boy would return. How then could he say this? Well, I think 
what Elaine read earlier in Hebrews 11 shows us what Abraham was thinking. Did you notice that? Look at Hebrews 11. You can either turn in your Bibles or just look at your bulletin again. Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Wow. So the author of Hebrews read Genesis 22 carefully, and he wrote exactly what Moses said. He said this was a test of Abraham. And how does the author of Hebrews know that Abraham considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first reason is because he did figuratively, right? Isaac was raised from the dead figuratively. Abraham's slaughtering knife was, was poised and ready to descend, but God intervened and he raised Isaac as it were from death to life. But I think there's a second and more important reason that Abraham actually believed that if he had killed Isaac, that Isaac would be raised from the dead. I think that clue is in the, the Hebrews passage too. Look back at Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. In other words, I think when God instructed Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham remembered his past. And he realized that ever since God had called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, his life had been marked by the resurrecting power of God. Nothing was impossible with the Lord. Nothing was too wonderful for him. God had done the miraculous. He had given life to Sarah's old and dead womb. He had created life out of death. And here before him was the child of promise. The resurrection child, Isaac. Perhaps Abraham looked back on his life and perhaps even he was thinking about this as he's on the road to Moriah and the memories that flashed before his eyes testified to God's power to resurrect the dead. As one friend and author wrote about this, Abraham's life was a Rolodex of resurrection. From the moment that God called him out of Ur, God had demonstrated his resurrection power again and again. That's why the author of Hebrews can say that Abraham, just like Isaac and Sarah, was as good as dead. He had no son, yet from him were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as innumerable as the grains and the sands of the seashore. Oh, beloved, do you see it? Abraham believed Isaac would die and rise again because Abraham knew in a sense that he had already died and risen again. He, had, he and Sarah had a son. If one resurrection wasn't too hard for the Lord, then why would a second one be too hard for the Lord? After all, here was the resurrection child, the son of promise. Friends, we're here on Easter Sunday. 
We as Christians believe that Jesus really did rise up from the dead on that Sunday. The Father's resurrecting power through the Spirit was manifest in the Son when life coursed through His dead body on that Sunday morning. And there are apologetic arguments to be made to support the fact of Jesus' resurrection. I alluded to some of them in my little letter at the beginning of the bulletin. I would encourage you to read it. There were eyewitnesses who saw Him and touched Him and spoke with Him. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead isn't just believable because we can stack up the facts in favor of its credibility. It's also believable because it's entirely in keeping with the nature of our God. He put His resurrecting, life-giving power on display from the beginning in the way that He's kept His promises to His people. That's what Abraham was banking on. He was gripping God's promises with a firmness provoked by his own experience of God's resurrection power. And he obeyed fully. He laid it all on the line. He didn't even hold back his own son. Do you see how this works? Do you see how it works? Don't think it's any different with you. God is calling you to count everything as loss for their surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said, if any man comes after Me, he must hate his father and mother and wife and children. Yes, in his own life also. He must be willing to forsake all that he has. Jesus isn't calling you to despise your family any more than God was calling Abraham to despise Isaac. But rather, the things that we love most ought to look like hatred in comparison to our love for Christ. Our love for Jesus must be singular and committed and proven by our lives. It's easy to come to church on Easter. Everyone's doing it. It's difficult to follow Jesus. It's difficult to walk by faith. The life of, of faith is a life of obedience. Faith isn't merely characterized by intellectual acknowledgement, but by a life oriented toward God, fully submitted to Him and His purposes for you. So how can you be confident this morning that following Jesus is worth it, whether you're already a follower by faith or you're not? Why should you walk out of a life of sin into the arms of Jesus? Why should you follow in the footsteps of Father Abraham and lay it all on the altar? Here's why. Because even when you suffer loss associated with the sufferings of Christ, even when following Him costs you a lot, following Jesus Christ by faith means that you've not only come to know the fellowship of His sufferings, but the power of His resurrection. He will transform your life by His power as a preview of what He's going to do on the last day when Jesus comes again to make all things new. On that day, God's resurrection power will swallow up death forever and He'll provide for us everlasting joy. That is why it's worth it. Here's the deal. I cannot promise you, I cannot promise you this morning that, that God's provision for you will look exactly like Abraham's. Perhaps His call on your life will actually include loss and include suffering and include affliction. But I can guarantee you 
that if you follow Jesus by faith, you'll know the resurrecting, life-giving power of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of His Spirit now and for all of eternity. And then if you obey Him by faith, it's always worth it because He is always trustworthy. Not only was the test taken, number two, the sacrifice was provided. Verses 9 to 14 contain the climax and the resolution of the, of the story. I think the fact that Isaac permitted himself to be bound and tied to the altar speaks not only to his relationship with, of love and trust with Abraham, but to his own faith in God. By this time, Isaac must have understood what the Lord was asking of him. He could have easily outran or outmuscled his old father, but he did not. He walked on like a lamb to the slaughter. In verse 11, just as Abraham took the knife in his hand to slaughter his son, God intervened. The angel of the Lord called him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your, your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Of course, he looked behind him. There's the ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham took the ram. He offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham's words that he had just said to Isaac prior, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. They proved to be profoundly true. Abraham had passed the test with flying colors. There's no doubt now that he fears the Lord. It's the Lord whom he loves. Not just the Lord's gifts. It's the Lord of the promise that he loves. Not just the promises. And so the Lord intervenes and provides a ram who just happened to be caught in the thicket. And that ram took the place of Isaac. God demonstrated his mercy through the ram being substituted his life, the ram's life, for Isaac's. You may be thinking, wow, this sounds a lot like the gospel. <laughs> because it is a lot like the gospel. You're exactly right. You don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to see this, do you? The gospel resonances just echo through this story. There's a loving father. There's an obedient son walking to his death, wood strapped on his back. There's a substitutionary lamb. These connections are obvious and they're amazing, but perhaps there's even a deeper connection that's just stunning. Remember where they were. A mountain in Moriah, which if you keep reading the Old Testament, you find out that in, in 2 Chronicles 3.1, Mount Moriah became the future site of the temple in Jerusalem. The substitutionary sacrifice in place of Isaac became part of the fabric of the life of God's people as they sacrificed at the temple on Mount Moriah over and over again. Abraham's history became their history. They offered sacrifices and praised God in Jerusalem at Mount Moriah for His continual over and over again provision of a substitute in their place. Abraham called Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. And then Moses says, as it is to this day, on the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. On that day on Mount Moriah, the Lord provided. On the Mount, which became known as Mount Zion, 
Over and over and over again throughout Israel's history, the Lord provided. He demonstrated His love for His people by providing mercy and forgiveness and sacrifice for them in their place. And then in the mountains of Moriah, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, three Roman crosses were raised later in history. Two for known criminals and one for a man who claimed to be Israel's Messiah and the Son of God. And there on Mount Calvary, the Lord provided. The sky went dark. And out of the darkness came the agonizing cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani! My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no need for a ram in the thicket or the blood of bulls or goats or the Passover lamb to be spilt because the one who hung on the cross was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you notice the, the words of the angel of the Lord to Abraham in verse 12? Now I know that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham did not hold back. He didn't spare his one and only son from the Lord, but God provided a substitute. Friends, God did not spare his one and only son, but there was no other option. He was the substitute. He was the lamb. I think the Apostle Paul was reflecting upon this verse in Genesis 22 when he wrote Romans 8.32. He who did not spare. It's the same Greek word in the translation of the Hebrew in Genesis 22.12. He who did not hold back. He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give, freely provide for us all things, all things necessary for our, our eternal joy. God provides the sacrifice, his beloved son. Friend, if, you, if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to understand, this is the very heart of Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian. God providing a substitute sacrifice for us. We deserve His wrath. In love, He provided Himself in our place. You might say, well, why do I deserve His wrath? I'm not so bad. I'm not like Hitler. I've never killed anybody. I'm not a mass murderer. I've not committed any atrocities. But friend, what you must realize is that all sin, from the whitest lie to the blackest sin, has offended the holiness and righteousness of your Creator. He created you in love to enjoy and worship Him forever. But you and I and everyone in this room, everyone in the world, have gone astray like sheep from our shepherd. All of us have high-handedly rebelled against our King. Like Adam... In the beginning, we wanted to be the king of our lives. And like Adam, we stand condemned before the Lord. We deserve hell, and we will face it, if not for God's mercy to us in Christ. But the good news of the gospel this morning, the good news that we've been rehearsing all morning, the message of Easter, is that God in Christ took the place of sinners. As a perfect man, He, he lived righteously in our place where we had failed. He then died in our place to satisfy God's justice against our sin. But what you need to understand is that Jesus was not just a man. He was the God-man. He was the eternal Son of God. 
God so loved the world that He gave. He provided His only begotten Son. His only Son. He gave Himself to us that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What love! What mercy! So friend, don't perish in your sin when you can know the love of God. Oh, please don't do that. It doesn't say whoever works really hard should not perish or whoever comes to church on Easter should not perish, but whoever believes, whoever trusts, whoever whoever depends upon the Lord. So turn away from your sin. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your legalistic efforts to curry the favor of the Lord. It's not going to work. Not in a million years. And turn to Christ, crucified and raised on the third day for you. And you will find that God loves you like He loves His beloved Son. Finally, in the next couple of minutes, let's look at the blessing confirmed. Verses 15 to 19, the Lord confirmed the promises that He had made to Abraham from the beginning. It's not that Abraham's obedience earned the promises like, like a wage earned for work, but rather that God did need an obedient son as his covenant partner. That pattern has continued throughout the Scripture. And so God fulfilled His promise through Abraham's obedience. Two quick things to note. First of all, verse 15. You see that? God swore by Himself. Hebrews 6 said that He did this because there was nothing greater to swear by. He swore by Himself. He will bring His promises to pass. He's putting Himself on the line, isn't He? Second, remember that the word seed, or translated here, offspring, can be either singular or plural. So I can have a single seed, or I can have a bag of seed, right? I can have one offspring, I can have a lot of offspring. Clearly, the offspring in verse 17, if you look at the text, is plural. It's the offspring multiplied like the stars of the heaven. But then at the end of verse 17, the offspring is singular. Do you see that? Your offspring, Abraham, shall possess the gates of, not there, his enemies. In other words, the angel of the Lord now makes it clear that what we've been learning from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, he will crush the serpent's head. He will possess the gates of his enemies as a mighty king. And then we must be talking about this same singular seed in verse 18. And in your offspring, this one man, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Paul understands this perfectly, doesn't he, in Galatians. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to the nations. God is trustworthy no matter how impossible his call to obedience seems. So friends, this morning, set your hope fully on His resurrecting power. Trust entirely on His loving provision in Christ. On our, at our Good Friday service, on Friday we sang the hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. I love the end of the last stanza. Lamb of God, for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on Him their hope have built. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a passage like Genesis 22 that assures us of not only 
that you are worth it, that you are worthy of being obeyed, but shows us the reasons, the fulfillment of your promises, your resurrecting power, and your provision of a substitute in our place. Father, thank you for the gospel. We celebrate it even now as we come to the Lord's table. Help it to be a sweet time of remembrance. In Jesus' name, amen.